Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, hope you're well. Ian here. Welcome back to another episode of the Tango Juliet Foxshop podcast. This week I'm going to be interviewing Professor Jason Roach. Now, what Jason doesn't know about uh, policing, specifically decision-making around policing and what makes a good police officer from a research point of view kind of isn't worth knowing. Uh, He has worked with police uh, organisations for many, many years, probably as long as I was in the police myself. So really looking forward to hearing all about that. Uh, Before we do, uh, just a couple of things from the news, as I like to do. Um, There's one story which has been grabbing a few headlines recently, which I just thought it's worth um, spending a few minutes just thinking about. So this is the controversy surrounding a Cambridgeshire police superintendent who went on the, I think it was the Gay Pride March, wearing a rainbow-coloured police custodian helmet and has uh, caused all sorts of wringing of hands, tearing of hair and gnashing of teeth uh, in certain quarters, not least the usual suspects like the Daily Mail around that, which has been seen as being um, in that sort of horrible term that everybody likes to bandy around, sort of the ultimate in wokeness and a sort of despairing response uh, to to that, um, particularly from certain tabloid newspapers. So I just thought it's worth just um, just reflecting on that, just to see where my head is with all of this. So um, just to get my facts right, this was um, a superintendent in Cambridgeshire, which is Superintendent James Sutherland, who went on a I believe it was, I didn't, I had to look this up, I had no idea what this was. International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia on the 17th of May. Um, So where am I on all this kind of stuff of uh, police officers marching on Gay Pride Day or, you know, wearing rainbow coloured uniform and all of this kind of stuff? Um, well, I suppose I'm. I suppose I'm a bit old-fashioned, if I'm honest. Uh, I tend to see that as being a bit of a distraction from what the police service, I think, should be about. Um, and there's there's two sides to that argument. Those who who do that will argue that they're showing solidarity with 
the gay, bisexual, transgender community um, and underlining their commitment to dealing with uh, crimes motivated by hatred. Um, others will say that it's uh, got nothing to do with policing and that we need to be seen to be uh, completely colour, gender, sexuality blind when it comes to the application of the law. Uh, I suppose on balance I probably tend to put myself in the latter of those two categories. Not because I've got anything against uh, gay people or women or people from a, a BME background obviously. Um, I just think that when you're a public servant then you need to be completely impartial about upholding the law and lawbreakers regardless of where they come from and and I do find all of this kind of a massive distraction really from what the what I believe the police should be doing and if you look at the absolutely I know I keep banging on about this but the absolutely shocking shocking um charge and prosecution rates for total quota crime at the moment 5.8 percent of all crime uh, which is just uh, appalling uh, beyond words really um, my my view is that you can virtue signal all you like about um, needing to support victims of domestic abuse uh, uh, violence against women and girls violence against gay people or, or any other group for that matter. But the reality is that the charge and prosecution rate for all of those crimes, together with all of the other crimes that people, you know, sadly are victims of in the UK at the moment, are crap. So it seems to me a little bit like, it, rather than actually doing anything tangible about that type of offending. It's just easier, isn't it, to um, dance around the street and, you know, uh, show solidarity. Showing solidarity is always going to be a much easier thing to do than actually rolling your sleeves up and dealing with crime. Um, so there, that's, that's kind of where I am with all of that. Um, the other story that I saw which kind of made me laugh a little bit was um, the fact that Boris Johnson has given his thumbs up to uh, the application of Bernard Hogan High to become the new Director General of the National Crime Agency. I had to chuckle when I saw that because uh, I, I never worked for him, but I know that his, his reputation is not a good one. And certainly a lot of people who worked in the Met during his tenure, you know, heaved a huge sigh of relief when he left. Um, he had a very abrasive management style by all accounts and um, yeah it was not good for the morale of that organization so yeah I just think um, I don't know I don't know what he's what he's like and never worked for him but um, yeah I don't I'm not sure that that is the would be the best choice for the National Crime Agency there you go we'll see how that one pans out um, right okay let's get into the interview with Jason Hi, Jason. Can you hear me all right? I can. How are you? I'm very well. Are you going to switch the camera on or are you going to be shy? Oh, it's an <laughs> oversight, obviously. 
There you go. Hey, that look at that. You look younger than the last time I saw you. You're definitely, you're definitely aging. I back, am. Aging I am backwards. younger. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah, I've, I've found the uh, the key to space time travel. Uh, did you um, put yourself in a state of suspended animation during the COVID um, period? That, that's one way of, of, yeah, we were all in a state of suspended <laughs> animation during COVID, apart from some that were allowed to have parties, but we won't go into that. Eh? <laughs> Let's not spoil it, eh? <laughs> No, nice to see you again, mate. And uh, the last time we spoke was, oh, God, it was probably 18 months ago, isn't it? Um, uh, yeah, it must be. Yeah. yeah, so we can come on to talk about the reasons why we spoke uh, maybe a little bit later on, just to sort of, uh, you know, it's quite an interesting idea that uh, we were discussing, wasn't it? So, um, firstly, thanks a million for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, and for the purposes or for the benefit of those who are listening, don't worry, this isn't going out live, this is pre recorded, so you don't have to worry. I can, oh. if, any, if any of us, uh, you know, projectile vomits or uh, someone breaks into the room and starts fighting you or something like that, hopefully that's not going to happen. I can edit those bits out. So, um, I can't guarantee that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that that won't happen. Disgruntled student having been given a D minus or something, you know. You know no, no, I, I don't have anything to do with them anymore. So oh, uh, God, that must yeah. be a huge. They must be very sure. disgruntled for a long while if they come in looking for me. I can tell you, <laughs> sort of wild-eyed, looking like yes. Tom Tom Cruise on Castaway. You know? um, so, for the benefit of people who are listening to this and who don't know who you are, do you want to sort of introduce yourself and all? I'm sure lot all your titles and whatnot. Okay. Um, well, apart from my mum, that probably is the rest of the world. So um, why should you know who I am? Um, my name is Jason Roach. Uh, I am a professor of psychology and policing at the University of Huddersfield, where I am also now the director of the Secure Societies Institute, which is a research institute that looks at all different aspects from a research perspective of policing, security and crime. Um, and that's currently my job. I'm hoping it will be tomorrow, but who mm. knows? Brilliant, excellent. So um, I'm really pleased to be speaking to you. I know we've spoken previously about other stuff, but um, I think it's fascinating. Uh, it's gonna be fascinating to get your take on what's been going on uh, in the last sort of couple of years. Um, and, and there's various things that I want to talk about. So uh, I want to talk about, um, you are probably the UK expert. I'm going to, I'm going to say that because I think you are on what makes for a good police officer. So, what are the psychological attributes of a good police officer? Um, and I think I think that's fascinating. And I, and I think there's probably be a lot of people will listen to that and be furiously scribbling notes down. And I know you've just recently written a book called. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the psychology of policing, is that correct? Practical psychology of policing, so right. close. Right, okay. Um, uh, it's not on the shelves yet, I believe, but um, I'd be really keen to understand the various things that you go into in that um, and uh, whet people's appetite for when it is finally um, published. Um, and then probably just a sort of, you know, a free-ranging discussion on what you think has been going on recently with policing um, and some of the sort of bad news stories and, and how what your thoughts are on how we kind of 
regain the trust of the posse. We I keep on talking as if I'm still in the police, aren't I? But um, in my heart, I still am. Um, how, how the police service regains the trust of the public and uh, takes the service to br a brighter, hopefully brighter future. So um, just to start off with, it'd be really interesting to understand how it was initially that you came to be involved with policing of of out of all of the different disciplines that you could have been involved in, why policing? Uh, good question. Um, by fortune rather than design, um, I did a degree in social science, mainly psychology, um, and graduated in 92. Um, and I ended up looking for a job like you do, um, because unfortunately you realise very quickly when you're a graduate that... Uh, you know, so Richard Branson or someone's not going to come knocking on your door because you've just got a degree and give you a job. So I, I got a job and I started off working on psychiatric wards um, and um, some large hospitals in Leeds, um, which I thought was quite good. And I was going down the clinical psychology route. I thought I'll, I'll use my degree to train to be a clinical psychologist. Um, but after sort of four or five years of that, uh, I, I'm not proud of this. I, I really got kind of a bit, a bit, little bit bored with it and a little bit kind of do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Mm. Um, and I fell into that. I saw a job advertised. Well, actually, I got a, a job at Manchester Uni as a research assistant in mental health. Um, but then um, my contract was coming to an end. So I, I saw a job advertised by the Home Office. And it was about, you remember when um, Tony Blair's government was giving money to all sorts of people to reduce crime, particularly setting up these government offices around, you know, regions of the of the country. Yeah. Um, to do that to reduce crime um, and uh, I applied there and I got a job there as a research assistant or whatever it was called criminology assistant whatever it was called and that's kind of how I drifted into into the policing side of it was uh, was that I started knocking around with police I hot desked with a couple of cops mm -hmm. um, and I, I've always been interested in how people make decisions particularly offender decision making but I started getting interested then in how police make decisions as well, because I think that's, it still is a very neglected area of, of research. And, you know, if you look at criminology, it's all about, it's obsessed with why people commit crime. Um, mm. That's the main question. But to me, uh, just as important as the other side of the coin is how do the, what, how do the people think who actually try to prevent or stop people from committing crime? Um, so when you see these drama series where they're focusing on kind of, um, you know, psychopathic murderers, it, it struck me that it was just as important to focus on the cops and their thinking that are trying to identify them, that are trying to, you know, bring them to justice. So I started, I suppose, about 20 years ago, that was the kind of situation I was in. Um, and I started to gravitate towards being interested in, in policing, but mainly in police decision making. Um, and I've kind of, it, it, once it got me in, didn't let go. And I've been doing it now for, for 20 odd years. Um, very odd years most of them uh, and um it never ceases to, to 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 sort of disinterest me if you see what i mean i do lots of other things yeah yeah, 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 yeah. but that's kind of what what i always come back to that as my kind of i, I i've I spent 20 years trying not to get labeled as an expert because i don't it doesn't sit easy with me i'm someone who knows a little bit more than the person <laughs> sitting next to one of us um but if i was with a gun to my head said you know, what you would expert in say something, it would be police decision making. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. And that's why I was sort of drawn to uh, to you um, 
uh, you know, some time ago, which again, we'll come and talk about later on, uh, because you're absolutely right that um, so much of the uh, policing psychology tends to be focused on the offender. And, and I suppose the closest it gets towards police decision making is when you, know, you might have a forensic psychologist advising a senior investigating officer uh, on a murder inquiry, for example, uh, what the mindset of the person they're looking for. And then that then, you know, hopefully, um, you know, informs that investigative strategy or whatever. But what I find really interesting in terms of what you were doing, uh, are doing, uh, was that you were more sort of focused on mainstream day-to-day -day policing really, uh, which makes up the overwhelming majority of policing activities, doesn't it? Uh, because murder mm -hmm. investigations, those, those complex, high profile investigations are only a very tiny proportion of what policing actually does. So what when you first um, met your first sort of uh, police officers uh, as a collective, I suppose, what were your initial impressions of them as a as a group i appreciate it's very difficult and always dangerous to generalize but what, what was your what was your general sense of them as people as people well um when i was a student uh it was trendy when i was a student to protest i don't think it is anymore is it so we used to protest about absolutely everything from the poll tax to what i've actually been on demonstrations when i was young and had to ask the person next to me what we were protesting about um which could have ended <laughs> rather rather badly had uh, it been something that I didn't agree with at all um and so my impression of, of the police was was quite one of they were quite heavy-handed the old kind of um pigs kind of label you know the sort of 1980s um and I had you know I, I did witness a police officer when we were on a demo sort of my friend said something and they came over and sort of laid into him um, and you did what only any you know what anyone would do tried to pull them off them and ended up getting sort of taken away myself never charged with anything but yeah. put in a cell and then thrown out so I didn't have a, a particularly good uh, impression I wasn't you know mm. of the police but that was very limited to my kind of uh, you know my kind of uh, experience um, but when I started um, working with the police then yes I mean I didn't I didn't sort of bear any great malice because these various incidents that I've been involved with and they hadn't acted in a particularly good way um, and I think it's, it's probably um, established how I feel about police now so when we come on to kind of stories about sort of some of the awful things that have been in the press over the last sort of year or so about police officers I always yeah. come back to my um, you know to my sort of kind of original um, impression of police is that the vast majority of them are really nice people doing a really difficult job. Yeah, um, they're not. You know, uh, unfortunately, those really nice people doing a really difficult job don't make it onto the news for doing really nice things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, yeah. in the same way that ITV News, I remember as a kid at ten o'clock, used to end with sort of an uplifting story about a cat getting rescued from a tree or something like that. It yeah. doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> they let you go to bed with ward or feeling. Feeling yeah. warm and warm and fuzzy. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. true. Now you go to bed and you, or you, you know, the, the best ambition you have is to wake up again because they've depressed the living daylights out of you by telling you what's going on in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the same way, I think policing as well. There's never any good stories about policing because 
the newspapers, journalists, they're not interested in the good stories about policing. It's always the, yeah. you know, the, the really bad ones. And, and I think there's a sense of proportion there. So right at the beginning, I, I take people as I find them. And I was very impressed. And, and I, I still am friends with 20 years mm. ago, some of the cops that I kind of worked with then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were on secondments from various forces in the north, but um, yeah. yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how you go on that sort of journey? Because um, I, like you, was probably I wouldn't describe myself as anti-police when I was a student, but I certainly wouldn't have described myself as a supporter of policing. Um, I was probably yeah. very skeptical, and you know, we'd, I grew up. Uh, I was at university uh, around the same time as the uh, miners' strike, and. You know, so all those pictures of the Battle of Orgreave and all of this kind of stuff was very mm. much sort of to the fore, wasn't it? Um, but it was, it was then my brother joined the police and I sort of started to hear some of the stories that he would describe about the things he would actually do. And I thought, actually, this I've completely got this wrong, actually, that um, there's a lot more to this than I thought there was. But um, so um, where I want to go initially is to sort of do a bit of a deep dive. I know that's, that's a really horrible manage, management expression, isn't it? Um, it is, yes. Don't you <laughs> so, again. Sorry, I apologise for that. That's okay. <laughs> I want to do a bit of a, uh, uh, a inquisition into what makes for a good police officer. So I need to caveat that question by acknowledging that their policing is a very broad church. Um, there are all sorts of disciplines within policing, uh, none of which are any sort of more important than the other. The whole thing needs to work as a sort of an ecosystem that's sort of self-supporting ecosystem, I suppose, so that doesn't sound too, too um, you know, poncy. Um, uh, and uh, everyone who comes into policing, generally speaking, if they stay long enough anyway, as opposed to today, where they're out the door after about two years, it seems, um, the, uh, they will gravitate towards the thing or things that they feel most comfortable that sort of best suits their um, interests, etc. So, so that's the caveat. Um, but for the purposes of the question, let's, let's suppose that we're talking about a uniform frontline police officer who is uh, doing a variety of different things and uh, trying to be the best they possibly can be at their job. So um, what are the things then that make, that sets, sets the really superb police officers apart from those who are sort of fair to middling or just not very good at all? Okay, big question. One, I don't profess to be an expert on, on what makes a good police officer, but I can only give you my opinion. Um, and um, you're right, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, policing is, we talk about policing, we talk about the police as a homogenous entity, i.e. everything's the same, every day's the same, everybody does the same job, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody needs to be the same, which is clearly was never the case and will never be the case. Um, I think that the way that policing is now, to, the act of policing is now is 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 totally a, a plethora of different and totally different situations and different roles and different people require different skills with different strengths far more so than the kind of the the redundant omnicompetent kind of police officer view that you know basically you start off on the street 
and you do your you work your way up the ranks and then you end up being chief constable if that's if you've got the you know and um, you've got the wherewithal etc i don't agree with that at all but if you ask me about individual qualities that i would look for in police officers then the first one is well let's look at it from the reverse i think um things that people wouldn't why people wouldn't join the police and one of them is if you want to make a lot of money you wouldn't join the police yeah um my dentist god bless them uh, i bear them no menace much has a helicopter yeah. okay now as far as i know dentists don't really save people's lives so if you ask someone why they went into dentistry if they said to save lives then you'd say well i don't believe you um mm. quite frankly they've gone in they've gone into dentistry to make loads of money um you don't go into the police to make loads of money yeah so you've got to have a big heart and you've got to have a reason your reason has got to be an altruistic one for wanting to do you know to do something for your community for people to to do the right thing whatever it is and and i don't think that's changed i don't think people you know go in it for any ulterior roads at least the vast majority of people mm. what kind of qualities do i think people need because more like qualities because i don't believe that you can learn absolutely everything you need to do the job whatever it is in policing without any kind of training guidance ex knowledge experience in other areas as well i don't i just don't think you can um and i think that's a redundant argument now what we're looking at is for new recruits to be up to speed remember the old adage about um it takes five years for a for a police officer to have the experience they need to actually do their job Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't know where the provenance of that is, but we all quote that. I don't know where it came from, but um, I think now what we're looking at now is, well, OK, so how do we get police officers to that level of experience as quick as possible? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where people like us come in, in, in helping them, giving them extra knowledge, giving them extra training, et cetera, et cetera, to help them not to replace anything that they're going to pick up on the streets, but to, to add to, to that experience as well. And I genuinely think that people have to be um, as good police officers. I mean, we're not looking at people who just enjoy breaking down doors because they're a different kind of entity whatsoever. But they genuinely have to be interested in people. They genuinely have to care about people to some extent. Um, they have to be incredibly resourceful. They have to be able to think incredibly quickly. A lot of the research that I've done over the years has been in real-time situations. So not the protracted you've got 24 hours to interview this suspect take your time they're they're in the interview room you know sort of etc etc where police officers have to make an incredibly quick decision life or death in some respects yeah yeah um and so people got to people have got to be able to do that you know i'm not saying that you know we, the nine times out of ten you may do that and another time you may freeze we don't know what's going to happen but um but people who can think very quickly on their feet um people who are empathic with with some of the people that they're working with particularly potential victims victim survivors and to some extent some of the people that they you know offenders and criminals that they come across um i also think that they need to to be able to communicate with other human beings well um in these days now of kind of um, mobile phones and people recording police officers every move, mm. in particular, the need to be able to, to 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 communicate what is needed to be communicate in an acceptable way. Um, and again, you know, I, I sort of I'm talking about the main sort of things. I'm not talking about you know sort of 
police officers losing their temper because they're getting beaten up or anything like that. But I'm talking about yeah. sort of just day, just, just routine, yeah. routine, routine stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think that's that's kind of where we're going back to. We're trying to go back to is actually police as good communicators. I mean, if you look at the stats that say that most of policing isn't actually about crime, it's about public reassurance. It's about interacting with the public. It's about then communication is obviously the key to all this. Mm. So if you've got you know some police officers who don't like talking to people, then maybe being on the street, community-based neighbourhood policing isn't the team for them. Um, yeah. So I think you know they need to develop that. Um, and I think I think police officers as well, uh, the cynicism that will come at some point, whenever you do a job for X amount of now in years, you become more cynical of, of, about it. Hopefully we keep a lid on it, um, but we keep more cynical about those that we work usually above us, those that are kind of, we work, whatever it is, you become more cynicism, cynical about the job. Then we should be looking into trying to kick that into sort of the 10, 15 year period and not sort of within two years and people are leaving, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, Sort of, um, and I think the biggest thing I would make, those qualities that I've listed, of course, I've not listed experience. And I do think we need police officers with experience from all different sort of areas, different life experience. Um, but we also need, and this is what I, I sort of get on my soapbox about, is we also find some way of, of, of downloading the experience of your 30-year-old officer who's just about to retire and walk out the door you know, taking everything they know and everything they've gained over 30 years away with them. We need to find some way of them being able to offload that and being yeah. able to use that with the younger, yeah. uh, with the, the less experienced police officers. Yeah. And I think that's a travesty at the moment. Uh, I'm all for people having nice benches or, or kind of bottles of whiskey when they leave, etc. Thanks for your service. But really, is there any other profession where you would let someone walk away with that level of knowledge and experience and not try to harness it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, there's a lot, there's so much in there, isn't there? So much. Um, and um, what what sort of jumped out at me there really was the realization that perhaps my way of thinking about what makes a good police officer is somewhat outdated. So if I tell you what I think a good police officer is it ten, tends to have been slightly shaped by my experiences of working as a uniform PC and and probably a uniform sergeant as well actually um, and because my natural interests I suppose are in crime as opposed to for want of a better word um, the more social work side of policing um, you know, I, I can do that. I can do that as well because I was a public protection inspector, um, you know, for quite a few years. And uh, but my natural inclination tends to be around crime and catching criminals. And where I see the biggest difference today, I suppose, and in the latter part of my service was that the proactive style of policing that I grew up with um, had all but gone um so and there's all sorts of reasons for that because i think the main reason being there just aren't enough police officers on the streets anymore and those that are there are overwhelmed by uh, chasing their tails because the demand on the front line of policing has is is unrecognizable from when i 
first joined, but I suppose I look back with rose-tinted spectacles at the days when police officers were out and about hunting down criminals, um, proactively stopping people who we either knew or suspected were wrong-ins um, and using our kind of guile to catch people either about to commit crime, carrying objects associated with crime or having committed a crime and were trying to get away, I suppose. So um, there's a lot, a lot in there, but I suppose what I was conscious of when you were going through that whole list of attributes was there was very little there around that deeply inquisitive, proactive, thief taker i suppose is the expression that we would have used back in the day what are your what are your thoughts on that well i guess i was talking about i was trying to generalize across kind of all of mm. this um yes you're going to have people that were i mean i myself i mean i do what i do because you you know reflected when i was a child i was always asking questions um i still ask questions and you're going to get lots of police officers that are interested in answers to questions or are inquisitive um, I'm not that there's not necessarily a necessity for a police officer to be inquisitive, but I think it helps. And for some, it, it's a major strength. Um, and I know what you're alluding to now about the stuff that I did with the, the sort of the ace thief taker kind mm -hmm. of um, research. And that's um, for the for the benefit of context. What, what I was hanging around with, I, I do, I still do quite a lot of sort of work with criminal investigators, police officers, particularly around homicide and child homicide. And a few years ago, I was um, about 10 years ago now, I was with some police officers, um, detectives, uh, and um, they were talking about a hero of theirs within their force that they'd all known about. And they'd all kind of, you know, an ace detective, if you like, an ace thief taker, they referred to him as. Yeah. And that that kind of resonated with me from watching sort of the 1970s Sweeney type films where it's kind of thief taking and all, you know, he's a great thief taker. And I thought, they're still using that phrase from the 1970s. What do they mean? And so I asked them to explain what they meant by it. And they said, oh, it's just, it's people who can spot a wrong and in a crowd. It's just, it's just something about them. They can, you know, they almost have this, this, this inherited kind of, or this innate kind of gift to be able to speak, to, to, to spot people that are, are no good or are about to be up to no good. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, I don't believe in magic. I'm quite fascinated by magic, but I don't believe in magic. There's always an explanation which is usually incredibly dull. Um, so I thought, well, I'll try and find out what it is that these people who are nominated to as or revered as ace thief takers, what it is they're relying on, or do they have some gift that nobody else has? Uh, and if so, can I identify it? And can you pass it on to other people? Can it be taught? Mm. Um, and so, and I've never written this up really. I've, I've, I've interviewed 10 so far from five different forces, people who I've asked, can, you know, I've asked cops, can you nominate somebody from your force? Most of them are still serving. Um, I've said, oh, it's so-and-so, fantastic. Well, they? they're great at ace thief taking. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and so I, uh, so I interviewed them, um, asking some questions, these nominated. They were quite... They weren't surprised they'd been nominated as an ace thief taker. I mean, uh, you know, I, I would have been shocked myself, but they weren't. So they obviously saw it coming. Um, and I just asked them questions about how they go about it and, and kind of what it is that kind of they're looking for and what stands out. And 
And to be honest, to, to, to sort of get, to give the punchline away without really telling the joke, um, you know, it's obvious things that they do um, that many other police officers probably do or don't do enough of. And that is that they, they're the ones that will spend a lot of time before they go out on patrol. And in most of these were PCs, only two were sergeants, but most of them were, P, were still PCs. And they were, um, uh, they would spend, they would be the ones that were last out of the room because they were reading on the, you know, the, the local reports or looking at photographs of wanted people or people of interest, etc. Or they were looking at number plates of interest, etc. Um, and so they would spend a little bit more time doing their homework. Um, and they would also then, I think, I didn't test them, I could have done, um, they had particular particularly good memories for faces and number plates, et cetera, as well. So they were playing to their strength. And they said that they could literally pick somebody out uh, in a crowd based on seeing their photograph very, very briefly, mm -hmm. um, you know, before a shift or the day before a shift or something like that. So their superpower was one of memory, perhaps, but it wasn't something we couldn't explain. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and... Well, the thing that I wasn't anticipating that was probably the most obvious, really, that, I, as I said, I hadn't seen it coming, was that actually they were prepared to be wrong. So right. they, they would stop people, ask them questions very politely. They all said they're very polite. Um, and if that person, any suspicions that first were, were first raised, that person was in an area that they looked like they shouldn't have been in or they were kind of driving a really kind of posh car and they were only looked to be about 18 or something like that, then, you know, whatever it was that aroused their suspicions in the first place. Um, and if they were wrong uh, or they felt they were wrong, there was nothing suspicious about this person at all, they would apologise uh, and they wouldn't sort of beat themselves up about it or anything. They would just move on to the next time mm. that that arose with somebody would. Um, and, of course, logically, their, their, their colleagues don't know about the ones that were wrong or, or were unfounded. They only know about the successful ones. So when yeah. they come back, you know, all conquering heroes with, you know, kind of the Billy the burglar that they've been after for years, because, you know, and they've managed to get them and they've brought them in or whatever it is, and, you know, and everybody breaks open the kind of, you know, the, the, the cakes and everything else. And they haven't seen the, the 10 people that day that they stopped because they thought they were something suspicious about them that there wasn't. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I think today, um, particularly, I think it's a generational thing. Yeah, my generation, God knows what my kids' generation is going to be like, but we're quite scared about being wrong, about absolutely anything. And mm. being scared about being wrong is quite often a recipe for inertia. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, and these fellas as well that I spoke to, um, they did all happen to be men. I mean, and I'm not saying that it is a man thing, but they did all happen to be men. Um, and they were also the sort that if they were in Tesco's, although other supermarkets are available, um, on a Saturday morning and saw something, you know, that they thought was suspicious, even though they weren't on duty, they would go yeah. and in investigate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and so I don't think they're a different breed of people at all i don't think they were born to do this job any more than anybody else but they have certain interests and certain kind of attributes and certain things that they pick up on yeah that, that make yeah. them seem to be at least more adept and more adept at doing uh, yeah. uh, kind of identifying 
wrong you know romans whatever you want to call them yeah yeah than others um but well, I, I was think... a, i was very blessed in the in the early part of my career i was very blessed i took i think i i, I put it i do a whole chapter on this in in my book um i was very blessed to work at clapham police station in south london which at that time there was an, an unbelievably um proactive up for it mentality uh, across all four shifts um, and every shift uh, had its had its fair share of superb thief takers who tended to be the what were known as the area car drivers uh, so they would drive the fast response cars and they would be out hunting day and night hunting down criminals and they had an encyclopedic knowledge of all of the local wrongins and and even those who strayed into the patch from maybe other parts of the country they just knew uh, what they were looking at because they'd seen that sort of behavior so many times that um they, they they could tell just by the way someone was looking back at them making eye contact for example mm -hmm. as, as they drove past in a car because most average members of the public do not make eye contact with you when you're a police officer if anything, it's the other, the other way around, whereas yeah. very often criminals will actually make eye contact and there is that moment of mutual recognition, I think, and not, it's very hard. It sounds like bullshit when you say that, doesn't it? But, but there is that moment of mutual recognition. They know what you're, what you're about. Um, and, and it works in plain clothes as well. I used to see it in plain clothes as well whenever I was on, when I was on surveillance sometimes or even if I was just off duty. I'd be walking down the street and you would see someone who you knew was a wrong and you'd make eye contact with them. And sometimes they'd even smile at you as if to say, I know you're an off duty copper. And I would be looking at them as if to say, and I know you're a wrong. And, you know, yeah. it's a very strange kind of dynamic between experienced police officers and criminals out on the street. It is. Um, I mean, I suppose what you're looking for really is that it, quite often what they look for is they're looking for a context where something doesn't look right. Yeah, so it's something that doesn't fit in. Um, one of the examples I can give you is this wasn't a thief taker one. This was me, um, so the stuff that some of the work that I do around self-selection policing. I was doing a workshop with some cops and some of them were traffic cops. Um, and um, I was talking about kind of people acting in certain ways that are kind of peculiar, slightly peculiar to the context in which they find themselves in. You know, you wouldn't think people would act in that way. Uh, and they were saying, well, when we're on nights and it's, you know, it's dark, obviously we're driving around. And he said, and then we pull up at the lights um, next to another car. Um, and he said, and if that car, some visor goes down or is already down, then we pull them over. Uh, and quite often we find all sorts of things in their cars and there are all sorts of people. And you think, well, I thought that was absolutely brilliant because why would you have your sun visor down in the middle of the mm -hmm. night unless you, you almost subconsciously think you're hiding from the police? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and, and it's, you know, I don't see why you should shamelessly uh, promote your book and me, not mine, even <laughs> though yours, yours is available <laughs> at the moment. Mine will never see the, see the light of day the way it's going. But that's the kind of thing that I've picked up is those little... And I, and I say to them, well, where did you get that sort of bit of information from? Um, well, we got it from a sergeant we used to work with and such. So is it in any training manuals or anything? No, it's not. And these are the pieces of information that everybody, all cops should know about. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, um, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm not filling the gap with, 
with the book, but I'm trying to illustrate that it's absolutely sacrilege letting these people retire with all this information in their heads that could yeah. so easily be, you know, channeled to yeah. to helping uh, to helping those least less experienced. Um, coming back to what you were saying about um, knowing offenders, of course, a friend of mine and everybody knows who he is, um, the ex chief of Durham, um, Michael Barton, um, always used to send out. Uh, Christmas cards to, mm. to the known offenders around the Durham area saying have a good Christmas we're watching you and I said to him one one year well, do you get any response from it he says well no whatsoever so I said well <coughs> excuse me he said uh, I said well do the opposite don't send them a Christmas card next year see what happens he said why would I want to do that I said no just see what happens you know and and he did get two Christmas cards from known offenders asking why they hadn't been sent for Christmas stuff. But sometimes you have to look at it from the other perspective is what I'm saying. I do apologise. I, I, I'm recovering from something yeah. that was not COVID, but COVID-like, um, yeah. and I'm coughing a lot. So I do apologise to everyone. No problem at all. Um, so what I'm kind of curious about is um, whether you... So let's, again, for context, purposes of context... Uh, agree. I think we can all agree that policing is no is as radically different today than it was when uh, I sort of describe I describe those sort of halcyon days when we had big big shifts when we didn't um, get tied up in dealing with all sorts of pseudo social work. I suppose for want of a better word. Um, and we were free to go out, and so let's 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 sort of agree that, that those days are, to all intents and purposes, gone. And we're um, talking pre pre Second World War, are we? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. it feels it feels like that now, doesn't it? Right, but okay. I suppose the question for me is, because society changes constantly, and because the the the, the demands on policing change constantly, and legislation changes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, Policing mm -hmm. operates within a constantly changing backdrop, doesn't it? So um, in terms of your research and the research of people like you, does that therefore mean that you have to continually reinvent the policing wheel um, to match you know, the operating environment of policing? Or are there certain constants, I suppose? I mean, you talked at the start about you know, empathy and sort of, you know, being inquisitive and uh, all of this kind of stuff. But um, do, you, do you feel that your research will continually have to change and evolve to reflect the way that society is changing, I suppose? Oh, that's a big question. Yes and no. Um, yes, definitely. In terms of, I mean, the research that kind of myself and, and many of my kind of peers and colleagues do is, is in support of policing it's not it's not telling the police how to do something it's usually in support of i don't know um, interviewing in certain different ways developing the ways of interviewing or for me and ken P's sort of self-selection policing uh, ways of identifying active serious offenders from minor offenses they commit it's all you know so it's about supporting and i i wouldn't tell the police how to police any more than i'd tell the, my kids teachers how to teach my kids um, although the trauma of homeschooling is still raw with me at the moment, so I don't really want to go there. I'll pay them whatever they want. Um, so, I, yeah, so it's constant support. And because policing does change 
or the nature of policing, well, the core of policing doesn't change, but how it manifests itself and how it has to be done changes. And of course, the work of people like me will always change as well. Um, having said that, there will always be kind of core areas that need constant research. And I think that, um, and there's not that many of us that do this, but I think that the area of criminal investigation and investigative decision-making is, is particularly one of those um, in that we're, it's still emergent, really, at best, because the research in that area is emergent. And I said it right at the beginning of this that it, I'm, I'm flabbergasted as to why, because it's just as important as offender decision-making, whatever that is, yeah? yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so there, that core area like investigative decision-making I mean that that kind of you know that needs to remain and and but then again that will change on a you know that change on a yearly basis. People make laws, they make different laws. You think of the COVID, you know, the social distancing stuff that came in, and the police were being asked to 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 uphold or, or you know uphold laws that were you know for behaviours that were ne had never been illegal. Um, yeah. Suddenly you couldn't do them, um, and that caused all sorts of different all sorts of strains and kind of problems for policing, um, uh, you know, because the, the game had changed um, totally. Um, and many, many of them didn't believe any of these anyway. Their job was to defend. And we've just done a, we've just finished, completed a national study of police wellbeing, um, police staff wellbeing as well, in terms of um, the effects of working during COVID. Right. Um, and a lot of the kind of the, the negative wellbeing effects were picking up one from the frontline kind of pcs because they're kind of really adaptable and they knew kind of what was coming their way and they they were kind of it wasn't nice but they knew that some kind of you know for want of a better phrase ourselves would would would, would spit at them and say i've got covid and that kind of thing i could kind of that it, that wasn't the the kind of the the negative effects on their well-being as such weren't as acute as you would identify sort of as a group of people um it was more subtle and it was more on the people working at home. It was right. more, on, you know, in the isolation yeah. and the taking witness testimonies by phone at home and stuff like that. It was, it yeah. was kind of the stuff that you wouldn't readily identify. And that was because the whole scenario had changed. Mm -hmm. The whole policing scenario changed. It changed very quickly. And um, people adapted brilliantly, I think, to be quite honest. And, and many of those adaptions, I think, will continue, irrespective of pandemics or what have you. You know, kind of, mm -hmm. it brought lots of things forward that were coming anyway. Um, but yeah, so, so so get back to your question: policing, people, society, constantly fluid, constantly changing. Um, there are some cons constants, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I come right back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning, and one of the prime kind of I think qualities of being a good police officer or police staff these days is that you are adaptable that you mm. can you know you don't expect things to be done in the same way that they've been do done for 20 years yeah just yeah, because yeah. that's the way they've been done I mean I tell this story regular and this is true um I was asked to look help reduce some um thefts from cars in an area of the north of England um, and um, I said to the police officers that I was involved, it was a sergeant in particular, we sort of crime prevention. I said, what would you do ordinarily? And he said, we'd give out this leaflet. We'd put it through the letterboxes saying that, you know, keep lock your cars because there's people about taking things from them, et cetera. Or lock it and lose it type scenario. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, well, does it work? And he said, no idea, but we've got a shed full of them. 
Um, <laughs> now that ain't evidence-based policing, yeah. but it's an, I mean I offer that as an illustration of yeah. we'll just continue to do things that we've always done, yeah. and it, quite often things become outdated or, or become yeah. less effective. So can um, we just? And I think, we just, sorry, go. Yeah, I inter- interrupted you. I was just going to say, can we can we go back to that notion of self-selection policing for a moment? Because because that again, I think is yeah. something something. It's a it's an incredibly simple unless you're going to disabuse me of that of that belief but it's an incredibly simple uh thing that i was taught it wasn't you know when i was taught it i wasn't it wasn't described as self-selection policing it was basically what i was taught was people who break small laws are much more inclined to break big laws so stopping the bloke who's got his rear brake light not working uh, is don't just deal with the brake light. Think about what else. What else is he up to? Um, because yeah. if he's driving around in a car that's either not insured or has got um, obvious defects, uh, it's different if you stop him and he just hasn't got, excuse my French, a pot to piss in. And, and because he just doesn't have any money, he just can't afford to get his brake light fixed. But but if he's making the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, thinking this is a wrong one, then that self-select so yeah. so talk, so talk, talk to talk to me about self-selection policing and how you got involved in that oh okay right well that goes right back about 20 years ago when i was working in the government office with police and crime reduction people and all sorts of things someone come up with a bright idea that we needed to go and see some naughty people yeah hmm. um and so um a, a trip was arranged to the lancaster farms young offender institute yeah which is just outside lancaster um, and can you believe it? They hired a coach. So about 30 of us went down in this coach from Manchester mm. to uh, Lancaster, well, up to Lancaster. Um, and the coach driver decided, I don't know if he never sat there or whatever, but he decided to, to try and avoid the M6 or whatever. So we were going all through the countryside and he got lost. Um, and by the time we got to Lancaster Farms, oh, God knows, I mean, it took it, time seemed to stand still. By the time we got there, um, I thought, well, if I was going to visit my mate who's in here, you know, um, what have you, could I be bothered getting the 14 buses and 15 trains and 16 taxis from Merseyside or from Greater Manchester to get here? Or would I borrow, appropriate some other means of getting there? Yeah. Or would I ask one of my dodgy mates also to take me up there or whatever? You know, and I, anyway, it started to ruminate with me that, um, and so when we were being shown round and the governor said, has anyone got any questions? I hit him with a curveball. You know, I knew where it was coming from, but it didn't seem strange to me. And I said, do you have a lot of stolen cars turning up in the car park at the prison? And do you have a lot of cars stolen from the prison car park? And he went, you know, why the hell are you asking me that question? You know, I wanted mm. assured him that I wasn't anything to do with the press. Yeah. He said to me, well, actually, we do. He mm. said, um, so I said, well, he said, well, why? So I explained to him why I thought that was the case. And anyway, we left it. And, and I said, uh, I might ask you if I could do a bit of research on that at some point. And uh, so he said, okay, fair enough. So off we went. And this sat with me for a little bit, um, as things do. You can ask my wife that. And I'm vacantly looking out the window. She'll know that something's going on that's not necessarily good. Um, and Ken Pease, I'd met him. Well, I hadn't met him, but I knew of him. He was kind of this this 
heroic ghostly like figure that used to turn up at government northwest with no socks on um <laughs> the man with no socks that used to uh walk around use a computer and then disappear again um and i never had the i never got that i knew who he was but i never had the uh i was a bit starstruck i suppose i never had the the courage to go up to him and say hello i'm I'm a little person that you never heard about, blah, blah, blah. I mean, anyone knows Ken will know that's, that's he's never going to sort of act all high just, just remind us what he's doing now. Where is he now? He's on his allotment, I think, at the uh, moment. Okay. <laughs> he's retired uh, in inverted commas. That means no one pays him. Um, but he's still, yeah, um, he's still kind of uh, doing all sorts of stuff. Anyway, I plucked up the courage to uh, email him, even though he was only the other side of the office. Yeah. <laughs> um, I emailed him and said, I've, I've got this idea. I, I, you know, a bit kind of these people, kind of dodgy people going to the prison um, and um, sort of getting there. I think they're breaking the law on, on the way or whilst they're there. And I think and that, that could then be used to uncover them, identify them as quite serious active offenders. <laughs> to which, um, to which he said, uh, I thought, well, you know, I won't hear anything. Uh, email me back. He didn't know I was sitting on the other side of the office. Um, he emailed me back five minutes later and said, phone me. Um, phone me now. This is a brilliant idea. Phone, phone me now. Did you have to go to, to another I'm... office to pretend to be somewhere else altogether? No, I literally I literally uh, walked across the office and said, oh, I'm such and such. And he said, uh, oh, lovely, pleased to meet you, blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, I was doing the JD, one of the JDI kind of master's courses at the time and they said oh great 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 and I said I just sent you an email you want one from over there so I, went, <laughs> I was gonna say I thought you were right idiot <laughs> so I said I said yeah I said well I'm a bit, bit shy etc etc you know kind of I'd have been the same with Bono you know if I never told him that uh, and um uh, and one thing led to another and we ended up of course he knew Mike Barton who happened to be the divisional commander for Lancaster at the time they uh, they did sporadically they did um, they did operations um, on the uh, at the driveway sort of leading up to up to the prison where they would stop mm. prison visitors for an hour check their cars all sorts of thing um, and so we asked them I asked them to do it sort of they did ten in nine months or something and we looked at the data and yeah those that were kind of breaking the law so some had stolen credit cards some would. Um, it's got quite a lot of taxi drivers, uh, taxis off the roads as well for, for having um, unfit vehicles. Um, there was a small amount of drugs. There was two people who picked the wrong day to go and visit their friend because they were wanted on bail and Mer uh, wanted by police and Merseyside for bail absconsion, all these kinds of things. Mm. So the first operation, there was, I think it was um, 10 arrests. It was like so, shooting fish in a barrel. Oh, it was the best thing ever. Lancaster, oh, you know, kind of, you know, it was a, it was a great day. Of course, it dissipated after that a bit, but that was that was just that was just after. I never knew he'd done it, but he kind of just published um, his illegal parking and disabled base study, which was the beginnings of self selection offender mm. self selection. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we would call it self selection policing, and he said to me, "Oh, by the way, you're now doing a PhD at UCL." Uh, on self-selection placing which was lovely considering I've met him half an hour ago um, and ever since it's, it's just grown from there yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the beauty yeah. of that from an operational point of view and we never had that we never used that term for it. the beauty and I would say this if there's any young and 
you know, uh, up and coming police officers out there, those who are training or who are in the first sort of year or a couple of years of service and you're really interested in this kind of stuff. This is really, really important. And you really need to pin your ears back and listen to this because um, the beauty of self-selection policing is that uh, you've already established that they've committed an offence. So you look for the offence. doesn't have to be the biggest offence in the world. Trivial offence, but it's sort of trivial offence combined with someone who looks like a wrong one and then it's your start as we used to say that's your starter for 10 because it doesn't matter how much they whinge and moan and shout or shove a camera phone in your face they've committed an offense and and then you can start digging a bit further and trying to understand who they are why they're there who they're with and all of that kind of stuff and i thought it was always such a so, so reassuring to know that you've already got an offence there. And if they want to argue the toss about it, let them argue the toss. But it's the law is the law. And that's where that's where having, I would add another one to that list of yours right at the start, is know, your, know the law and know your legislation. Because if you know your legislation, then, um, you know, you're on a really sound footing, aren't you? But uh, anyway, I'm kind of... Um, I've just, yeah. hij can I, can I, just hij hijacked your... Uh, your uh, you have, and it, actually, you're not 100% correct there either. But from my, my version of it, and that might be your version, but right. my version of it is, is a lot more objective and is a lot more neutral, is that, um, all right, uh, I came up on the back of a fag packet with the, um, those who do big bad things also do little bad things. Yeah? yeah. And the next bit line on that should be, and they do them more frequently. And it isn't about... Yeah targeting people that you already know okay as as serious offenders so it's not about kind of one cop said to me oh we do that we use self-selection policing regularly we've got this drug dealer or what have you who we you know we're, we're struggling to get any info on or any kind of evidence on um and so we went and we busted the taillight on his car and we knocked on the door and said you've got a broken taillight um and it was great you know it, it, and i said no no no, no that's not self-selection they haven't self-selected <laughs> You knew who it was, you know, yeah. the American American authorities knew who Al Capone was. They yeah. just got him for tax evasion. Tax evasion didn't uncover him as a gangster, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's the key thing is, you know, you know, I've never met a police officer yet who doesn't think they know most of the criminals on their patch. Well, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you only know the ones that you know. Um, yeah. um, it's about uncovering those that you don't know, really. Mm, mm. That is, that if they commit a trigger offence, and we've identified, I don't know, dozen, you know, quite robust trigger offences, tr tr minor trigger offences, that if committed, irrespective of who's driving it, old lady, if it's a car that you've pulled over, yeah, mm. doesn't matter who it is, colour of the skin, religion, whatever it is, they have committed this minor offence, yeah, mm. which allows you, gives you permission, morally, legally, more justified to then probe a little and ask some questions, look in the boot, etc. Um, check them out. And then you may hopefully if they, you know uncover them as a serious active serious offender if they are an active serious offender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now the, the difficulty with self-selection policing as an approach is that you have to minimize the inconvenience to the false positives. Um, so the, the amount of people, for example, that park in a disabled bay very briefly illegally even though there's other disabled bays available because they've gone to the cash point and come back you know most of those aren't going to be serious offenders yeah yeah 
So the way that you check them out has to be really inconvenient because they're not going to thank you for it afterwards. Yeah. Um, so it's about kind of inconvenience as well. And I have this conversation with a couple of the other day. It's not about maximizing inconvenience for serious offenders. It's mm. about it's about identifying them and minimizing inconvenience for those that aren't serious offenders. Um, and, and you, you know, my examples, my sexy examples, as I call them, any you sort of got loads of them of serious serial murderers being identified by by, by minor offences. <laughs> Excuse me, and it was never because uh, the cops knew who they were. Like Peter Sutcliffe with false plates on his car. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know it was Peter Sutcliffe. You know, you know, good policing led to them uncovering him as Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Mm. The act of having false plates on his car itself didn't say. I'm the Yorkshire Ripper. So it's it, I mean it may sound like I'm semantics here, I'm splitting, I'm splitting hairs or being pedantic, but yeah. I think that's really important for us to protect the self-selection and policing approach. It has to be seen as as completely yeah. neutral. Yeah, you know? no, no, I think I think just to clarify maybe what I was getting at was that I, I, you're absolutely right. You don't need to have ever clapped eyes on that person before. Yeah. You need, all you need to do is see an offense being committed. Um, you know, if yeah. it if it was Mrs. Miggins. Um, parking on W line, and I'm not interested in Mrs. Miggins. But if it's but if it's someone who looks like the sort of person who is in the custody block most of the time, albeit mm. you don't actually know them, then that's definitely worth a bit of a further bit, bit of a further dig, digging. You see, again, another kind of another sort of um, added the added value I think of self selection policing is. It should take all bias away. So even if it is Mrs. Miggins, yeah, she should be treated in the same way. And this is why it should be as painless as possible. As somebody you think yeah, is knuckles are dragging on the floor with tattoos that you think looks like your average, you know, criminal, stereotypical criminal. Mm. Because who knows? Mrs. Mm. Miggins may well have a kilo of cocaine <laughs> in her boots. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's about... Trying yeah, to protect, uh, protect police officers in terms of, of of being aware of any bias that they might have or taking the bias away. So that's why we think it's good. I mean, it work, it'll work with, if we give more money to do more, to find more trigger offences, it mm. could be, go some way to, to kind of helping with the stop and search kind of controversy, if you know what I mean, because... Yeah. Yeah. Stop someone because they've committed a certain offence, uh, or we've identified as being quite indicative of serious criminality you've stopped them because of that mm. not because of who they are what color they are what religion they are what car they're driving you see yeah. what i mean yeah, yeah um yeah. so i think in terms of human rights even i think it, it it kind of it's a good way of doing it i mean it's very quickly i'll tell you you remember that when the i don't know if we still are now when the uk government was playing a fortune to the european uh, to the court of human rights european court for human rights for for retaining DNA samples of, you know, 8 million people of which quite a lot of people yeah. were, were, had never been charged with anything. And yeah. the UK government was paying a fine hmm. for holding their DNA. Um, and I, I don't know why I wrote to the Times about this because I don't even read the bloody paper, let alone um, let alone kind of, you know. Anyway, I wrote it and I thought self-selection policing could be the answer here. Hmm. Because if we identify those minor offences for which which indicate more serious criminality. Not that little Johnny's gonna, he's nicked a chocolate bar, 
so therefore is then going to become a major criminal. I'm not talking about career pathways, and I'm talking about the here and the now that this yeah. person is an active serial killer. Um, then that would perhaps give more will give more legal justification um, for taking buckle swabs from certain, these certain offences. Mm. It wasn't because you know. Yeah. Um, and retaining the DNA from these people because they committed these these offences that links to serious criminality, um, but you know uh, it probably didn't even make it into the next day's chip wrappers. I don't yeah. know, but it, I never received any response. But I think it has promised in that respect, in that it's about the actions of somebody rather than who they are or yeah. what they look yeah. like. Or what no, they I, I definitely, I definitely get it. Um, in, I mean, the the sad reality, Jason, is that um, because of everything that's been done to policing over the last sort of ten or twelve years, in terms of you know the the the, the car crash uh, that happened under Theresa May and David Cameron, and losing twenty thousand officers, twenty three thousand members of police staff, massively yeah. exponentially rising demand. I suspect a lot of this is kind of academic, so no pun intended. I, I suspect a lot of this stuff is 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 now largely irrelevant. And I think because I just don't think frontline officers, operational officers, have got the time anymore to mm. do this. I think I think they are very much it's the the control room, the 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 the, the pile the piles and the hundreds and thousands of unresourced incident logs that the the control room it relentlessly dishes out um that that results in them just not even understanding what proactive policing means anymore i mean do you do you see any mm. evidence of that well i do i mean i must say there that i'm on a one one person mission to uh, get rid of the phrase it's just academic because that means that anything <laughs> i do is just purely <laughs> Of no consequence of practical nature to anyone whatsoever, <laughs> which is why I do it. Um, but yeah, um, uh, coming back to so yeah, another letter I wrote to the Times, which was got the, the a similar response, was um, I, I think I'm possibly maybe Ken is the, the other the only other person. I was lamenting the loss of the tax disc, mm. yeah, on cars because I was just doing some research. It was saying that people that whose tax discs are way out of date, don't even bother getting one, you know, you know, are quite, you know, worth looking into their, what they're doing extracurricular-wise, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, the, the tax disc disappeared. Um, and the argument being, well, the police could just do a check straight away. Well, only if they've got an AMPR camera on every street will it pick up every number plate and check if someone's got tax. Yeah. Um, and also, kind of, they need to be suspicious in order to stop a car. Why would you be... How would you know that somebody didn't have a tax? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of it's all a bit bizarre. Um, and I thought that took almost like the public surveillance kind of function away is that anyone could notice that the car they've just parked next to has a tax disc that's six months to a year out of date. They may work a note of it. Uh, extended policing families, traffic wardens, or what have you, park, yeah. whatever people could mm. notice that and report that. Do you know what I mean? And, and so it kind of it, it it's it's made more work for the police now. Than having a tax desk would have done because yeah, you know yeah. people could, people could contribute to that, and I think that's the kind of thinking that that we're up against now is that if you think you can give people instant information like a palm top with access to the DVLA with all that kind of stuff, that somehow it helps police, it helps policing. Well, it does in some respects, but it takes away kind of the 
the room that you have to think about things and to think about kind of mm. what's different about this situation what, why do I why am I suspicious about it um and I and I think that's what we need to go back to we need to think about when it was I did a study on the Hort ones do you remember them or Horties yeah, yeah home yeah. office Producers. Home office road and built one form, yeah, yeah, which you used to get given. I've got given one of those several times. Or when you used to, when you get pulled over in your car, you've got a faulty brake light or your number plate's muddy or whatever it is, they pull you over and ask to see your documents. Well, unless you're uh, you're in America where they cover their documents absolutely everywhere, don't they? I, yeah. I never had any of my documents, so they give you a port one, a haughty, don't they? Mm-hmm. And which you then use to go and present your documents, your driving license, your um your tax, your insurance, all, yeah. uh, MOT, all those things at yeah. a police station at your convenience. And then they would say, right, thanks very much. And off you went. They were just checking you out, weren't they? Yeah. Um, and I was talking to some police officers a little while ago and, and I was telling them about it. And I said, well, it was progress, isn't it? Well, what do you mean? Well, we know instantly we can run a number plate check, you know, instantly. And we know whether someone's got all those documents. And I said, well, you're actually missing the point. The point is, that those, the study that I did, those people that didn't produce, didn't comply with the Hort 1, when I looked at their criminal career records, so mm. we say their criminal records, they were quite extensive. These were mm. these were people that were kind of, they're a bit more than up yours copper. They were yeah. kind of like, you know, kind of yeah. quite heavy-duty people that were involved in some serious yeah, crime, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. violence, drugs, you name it. Yeah. And I said, so those that don't comply to Hort 1, or the haughty are self-selecting themselves yeah. for you then to then go and scrutinize them more. Yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't do that because when you stop them, they'll the and the number plate, they probably have the documents, they probably are bona fide. It's the fact that they are not doing that. Do you know what I mean? And they mm-hmm. refuse to go to the police station. That's the opportunity that you're missing, and that's yeah. the bit that you've lost because of the technology. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure they were with me, to be quite honest. They went, yeah, whatever. It's a longer story that plays out, isn't it? So they, they, mm. they, don't, they, don't produce, they wouldn't produce, and then they, they would then, uh, a summons would be then be issued, which yeah. would be returned unserved, generally, because they're going to ignore the summons just as quickly as they'll ignore the producer for the documents. Um, mm. but, then that, but then eventually you'll get a... Uh, a an arrest warrant uh, ultimately once it works its way through the court system then you get a warrant somebody will wanted a warrant and that is your excuse to go and lock them up and and really spoil the day um so uh so yeah you're absolutely right there's a listen i'm conscious of time i just want to get to um the uh, sort of talked about it at the start where you look at some of the horrible nightmarish scenarios that have been playing out um, in policing and, and you know, again, caveated with the vast majority of police officers go about the business, uh, not behaving themselves very, um, you know, impeccably, uh, not doing things like photograph, taking photographs with dead bodies, uh, not, um, you know, uh, doing some of the appalling things that police officers have, have uh, been found to be doing over the last sort of, you know, two or three years. What's your take on all of that? Uh, have you? What are your thoughts on what what is going on? Um, it's well, to be honest. I mean, it's my first thought is always it's all, that's awful. That shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, my second thought is always that 
the relationship we I mean we do police by consent the relationship with the public is one of consent no one's ever signed a form saying yeah we want the police but it is by by me by consent um and every time something like that, that makes it into the press then of course that that consent um or that faith in the police that um it, it takes a massive massive dent um mm. And it don't bounce back immediately because, as I said, there are another any great stories that to, to almost counterbalance some of these, you know, or to give some kind of positive um, story to it. Um, so it worries me from that from that respect. Um, but I mean, if 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 it's an individual kind of abhorrent uh, sort of murder or what have you, then there's not much. I mean, I'm not excusing anybody here at all, but there's not much you can do about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of the text messaging sort of thing at Charing Cross, that instant, well, that's just that's just despicable. However, again, I'm not offering any exculpation here, but um, or any excuses. But I have in my research found, particularly with detectives that are involved in homicide investigations, particularly child homicide, the dark humour mm. is a way of coping. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a resilience kind of way of coping that out of that context is bad enough in the context that it's used, but out of that context would just become abhorrent to anybody would they just wouldn't understand it. Do you know mm. what I mean? No. Um, but I can understand why the use of dark humor in some respects is found as being really important to people's well-being and, and mental health in the environments in which they're in. Again, I'm not excusing any of this. I'm just trying to understand it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that in some respects that the general public, include myself in this, we we do hold police at a very, very high standard um, and um, without knowing on a day-to-day -day basis what, what police officers are facing. I mean, you know, kind mm. of um, um So I can see both sides to it, but many of the the, the kind of the, the stories that have made it into the press at the moment or the last year or so are, are kind of uh, are quite indefensible as individual kind of um events yeah yeah, um, yeah. i mean it's interesting that you've been recently doing a project on uh police officer well-being mm. and did you without wanting to i don't know is it, if it's been published yet or whether it's sort of embargoed or whatever but i mean did you identify any significant themes based on the reduction in resources that we've seen over the last sort of 10 years or was that was that not really the focus of your research well uh, you know uh, kind of uh, well the well-being kind of being a police officer or work being police staff being in policing there are two types of kind of stresses and one's the the kind of the organizational one so that will be the way that it's set up the reduction in number of officers all that kind of stuff um, and then there's the operational one, which comes with doing the type of job that you do in the area of policing that you do it. And, just, one, um, just one second, Jason. I've yeah. got a flipping massive bee buzzing around here. <laughs> All right, don't kill it. I did, No, no, no. I just need to open the window that it out because... All right, um, go on then. Sorry about that. It was just... You just... <laughs> It was just an opportunity <laughs> for you to wave your own book around in front of the camera, oh, wasn't it? Oh, for God's sake. It's gone now. Gone now. It was a massive wasp actually. I thought it was a bit too early for wasps. It was like our biggest wasp I've ever seen. But uh, All right, okay. anyway, well, listen, I'll, sorry. I'll we take anyone in an audience, me. I'm not bothered. <laughs> no, so so no, sorry. So we were talking about um 
the well-being the well-being issues around um the way the organization is set up. yeah um, yeah. And so if you go back to that point, I'll, I'll edit this bit. I don't OK, know. well, well, obviously, those that um, some of those that are newer in post, shall we say, with least experience have never known any different. Yeah. Um, um, and those that are long in the tooth have known lots of different epochs and periods within their job of policing, if you see what I mean. Um, and um, so they're the ones more likely to say that, you know, it's just stresses and what, what I'm working on at the moment, to be honest, um, and we're just going to start looking at is is the most important relationship, which seems to be in policing, which is between the sergeants and the PCs, um, right. you know, a, as a way of kind of um, supporting and mitigating some of the well-being issues. Sergeants are brilliantly placed to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But again, they will only... The, the most effective sergeants doing that in supportive roles are those that are the least cynical about kind of the organization and the way policing is going. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So um, I touched on right at the start, the, the fact that uh, where our paths, I, I um, in that, in that, in that expression that everybody now uses, uh, I reached out to you, didn't I? I reached out to you and uh, <laughs> Professor Lawrence Allison, uh, who wrote the book Rapport, uh, and he, he and his wife Emily um, produced this book all about um, the, the, the most uh, effective way of communicating with people to gain the best outcomes, and yep. they based a lot of their research, didn't they, on the interrogation of high-value detainees at places like Guantanamo Bay, and they were commissioned by the um, Obama administration to do some work, research into a more humane way of interrogating high value prisoners. And they sort of pretty much the work that, that Lawrence and Emily were involved in together with others really ra radically changed for the better the way that um, uh, terrorist prisoners were interrogated. And a lot of that then has now sort of moved into the area of sort of uh, all sorts of serious crimes or rapport-based interviewing. So I had a bit of a brainwave thinking, and then I looked at what you were doing as well, and I thought, you know what, there's something here, there's something desperately needed. I call it a training package, call it learning experiences um, to help police officers um, communicate better to be to gain the trust and confidence of victims witnesses suspects um have more harmonious working relationships together for supervisors to um you know to to be able to supervise in a more empathetic way uh sort of dealing with some of those potentially bullying cultures that have historically existed within policing or all organizations for that matter so um do you, do you use i mean we we kind of so without sort of airing our my dirty laundry in public i did pull together a proposal which you helped me with and lawrence helped me with um but the net result was that uh those that i kind of approached uh with it in policing just didn't seem terribly interested and i find that so depressing that we were offering them something that would fundamentally change the way that their officers um, went about their business. I mean, 
Do you think I was ahead? Do you think we, I, we, do you think we were ahead of ourselves there? Do you think that might fly a bit more today? Well, I can't, I can't believe you mentioned Lawrence. I mean, Blam is not even here, and um, you know, he's, he's not. Well, it would be it would be remiss of me not to, wouldn't it? It's far superior to you know, professor than I am, uh, and he's loaded, so he didn't need the mention. Um, no, I mean, the one thing I learned many years ago with working with police officers in this kind of arena is that you don't take things personally unless it's men personally, um, and quite yeah. often. Um, and it, it, you know, you can come up with ideas or I quite often repackage their ideas and sell them back to them. Um, and that doesn't even mean that they want them uh, or they're that yeah. interested. Um, it's just so, so contemporary, so now, so thinking now um, that a lot of police officers, it, it's just they can't even think tomorrow, let alone thinking about kind of what may be needed in six months time. Yeah. Um, and it takes a lot of convincing and, and you know and, and kind of um convincing the right people um i, I just say but I, i've always i've always i've always maintained that the research i do is with police not not at police mm. um mm. And if and if they see value in me or others doing things that will help, they genuinely think will help them I mean, there's a lot of stuff at the moment i'm changing into lawrence the well and bowen of of police custody suites because um I'm kind of messing around is the wrong word, but I'm coming up with things that will make people think you are, you know, residents of custody suites might yeah. make them think about why they're there and doing stuff at the moment. And some, and, and never a week goes by where I don't get someone from another force. And I've heard about the work you're doing with such and such. Can you come and look at ours? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm up to about five, between five and 10 different forces now looking at kind of, I mean, we all know they're battleship grey. I mean, you, you know, they're, they're boring as anything, aren't they? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And an advertiser would kill to have that space. Someone looking at it for like 14, yeah. 28 hours, whatever it is, would <laughs> kill right, to yeah. have that. So, you know, and it's so it's snowballing slowly. Um, and the point of the story is that if I had sent out an email, asked someone to send out me to 43 forces, asking them to be involved in this, very mm. few would have got back. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So quite often in, in kind of the stuff that we do and, and kind of that we, that we propose, it takes, it's a trick, it's a snowball effect. You've got to get one person interested yeah, in it. Yeah, and then another, yeah. the next thing you know, you've got more work than you can handle. Hopefully yeah, that's the yeah, scenario. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's getting that initial one. So I coming back to you, Ian, a bit of, a bit of personal counselling. I, <laughs> I wouldn't take it personally, although was it your old force? It might have been. Well, there you go then. Any four, <laughs> any of the other forty-two, not that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, you know, end and, of day, yeah. it's uh, uh, aim smaller, uh, and yeah. and I think it's just something that needs to, you know, it will it will germinate. And sometimes these things. Well, we were working on self-section policing now for twenty years, um, mm. and I, I, still only a fraction of police officers know what it is or ever heard of it. Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, hard, it's uh, been hard. It's been hard to watch, you know, over the last few years, seeing the service, you know, really struggling, and um, and it becomes a self, a sort of a spiral, potentially spiral downwards because with as morale seems to, you know, be imploding somewhat, uh, more and more experienced people leaving, the budgets are as constrained if not more constrained than they've ever been demand shows no sign of abating um 
and you're absolutely right. I just don't think they can see the wood for the trees a lot of the time. And and the last thing they're going to do is, you know, want to kind of spend money on some unproven bright idea, I suppose, isn't it? No, I think the frustrating thing is that um, I was doing some work with um, with an ACPO as was group, the MPCC group for, and we were looking at ATM theft. So not theft from cash machines, the actual theft of them or the blowing up of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I went to this meeting of about, there must be about 15 people there and people from Safer Cash, Sainsbury's, Asda, Cops, you know, all sorts of people. And they were thinking, how can we think about this in a different way? This problem, how can we think about it in a different way? And I said, well, plant higher machinery, JCBs are kind of used quite frequently, aren't they? Mm. You dig, they dig them out the wall, don't they? And, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I said, well, why don't we look upstream at the problem um, and make JCBs more difficult to nick, yeah, or to mm. drive? Or, mm. or we do a campaign where if you are driving or walking the dog, um, or you're out for a drive and it's 11 o'clock at night and you see JCB driving down your road, phone, ask, you know, phone the non-emergency number and say, I've just seen a JCB, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, and, and we can go even further back than that. As I found out that all JCBs have the same default code to start them up, the PIN code to start them up. And most people never change it. So right. basically, you can take any right. JCB you like. It'll have the same pink. I'm not going to say it now in case anyone yeah. anyone is actually viewing this other than our yeah. boss and yeah, decides yeah. to go and make a JCB. Yeah. Um, and I did about an hour on this, and I was saying, we can you nudge type psychology as well? And, you know, um, and they said, well, that's great. That's great. Thanks very much. Uh, and then they moved on. And the, the conversation went straight back to target hardening. It went straight back to how do we make these things harder to steal? Well, this industry person's got this, and half a million quid will get you that, and that, and that, and that. And they, they, they're thinking at all. It was yeah. just down to the, the point of the commission of the crime. You know, make it harder. Yeah. And, and the, um, the, the cop that asked me to come just came out and sort of, um, mimed banging his head against the wall. Um, and that's kind of what you're up against. People, people. It's the end point of a crime. It's where the crime happens. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. throw money at technology, or if the police, if it's IT, they'll throw billions at it. You know, better IT system, better kind of integration of niche and all those kind of things. But if yeah. you come up with something that's actually quite cheap um, um, and, and quite easy to understand, people are more they look, uh, they look They look sideways at it, yeah. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Um, and so you're up against that as well. You're up against yeah. kind of we think we need to pay millions to get a solution to this problem because this problem yeah. is really important. Well, Greater, uh, Ma- Greater Manchester are now finding out that, that uh, you know, and it's not just Greater Manchester, isn't it? Other forces yeah. have spent gazillions on IT systems that don't work very well, don't they? Listen, well, const- the, sorry, const- yeah. constant of time. Uh, just just to round off then, having shamelessly promoted my own book um, and Laura, Laura yes. Allison's. Um, when yes, is your, I, can't, when, I can't believe you've done that as well. <laughs> When uh, when is well, uh, when is your book likely to come out, uh, Jess? Likely to be the twelfth of never. Uh, uh, the way these things are going, because um, yeah, it, it, bearing in mind, um, it did take me a long while to write it. In that about four years, well, didn't start it for four years. Um, in that, um, 
the other books I've written, I've co-written with Ken Pease, and I always blamed him for the delay. And then I realised that written this one, it's actually um, not Ken, it's me. Um, and so that that got up the the uh, the nose of the publishers, who well, I've been very good, I must admit. Um, and it's now gone out for another. I've, I've actually finished it. It's gone out for review, um, and I've actually sent it to some cops that I know right. to review as well, just as a kind of. Um, it may or may not get published this year by that publisher, oh. but if not, I, I, I will find another publisher or even publish it myself um, yeah, yeah, yeah. because I, I actually, and it's probably the wrong thing to say, but I actually quite like it and the rest of the stuff I've done, mm. I'd never really like. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but we'll see. We'll see yeah. what happens. But uh, yeah, so I'm not going to shamelessly plug a book that may or may never <laughs> appear. I'll leave okay. that to you. <laughs> Well, if it comes out, I will be at the front of the queue to buy it. And uh, I think it's incredibly important. And um, yeah, we will. It's just a case of watch this space, isn't it? In terms of the the, the landscape of UK policing, I I do think. Uh, I mean, I got like I got. Um, you you get very precious about the reviews of your book. And the other day, I got my very first three star review. I was like three star, you know. Jokey, three bloody stars. Um, well, it's not bad I, if it's out of four, is it? <laughs> and um, the the chap the chap said something along the lines of, "But all along, he's called the book the job's fucked." And all along, everything he says about the job, uh, he uh, infers that the job's fucked. And then, right in the last chapter, spoiler alert, he says that, "Do I actually think the job is irretrievably fucked?" And, and I said, "No, I don't." And the reason I said that was because I am a strong believer in the resilience of the human spirit and in and particularly when it pertains to UK policing. I think UK police officers have got, you know, some some wrongings amongst them, but overwhelmingly are some of the best people in British society, in my experience. So I do think that they're going through a particularly horrible period at the moment, but I also feel broadly optimistic that eventually things will change for the better simply because they have to i don't think i don't think things are sustainable kind of as they are well i'm, I'm really sorry you didn't like the, my review of your book i was just trying to be honest <laughs> um, you know it's nice to know it's not upset you is it just leave it alone leave it alone it doesn't matter i know you end up finding it like bloody obsessively checking them sort of two or three times a week yeah. and then sort of like feeling yeah. you know feeling that your, your your bottom lip starting to tremble when you read yeah. something that you don't like so it's no, just not, that, that, that 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 way ruin lies don't worry about it you know at least <laughs> they've read it you know at least you've sold exactly. one copy exactly yeah listen jason it's been an absolute pleasure i've really really enjoyed chatting to you and um yeah we must catch up offline um again because i do think there's something in that proposal um, I just think it might have been a little bit ahead of its time. This is that was probably pre-COVID, wasn't it? Whereas I think, oh, uh, yeah. or was it was it early COVID? I'm trying to think. It was, um, yeah, no, it, it was a, it was it was early COVID-ish, wasn't it? Well, J.K. Rowling manuscript for Harry Potter knocked back six times, so you know, keep going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. All right, listen, thanks ever so much. Um, yeah, I look forward to uh, you know buying your beer uh, when. Uh, when our paths cross, which I hope will be in the nearest future. So do I, and it won't just be one. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Good man. Thanks ever so much, Jason. You take care. No worries. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
If you're enjoying my podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could go on Apple Podcasts, if you use Apple, and give it a five-star review and maybe add a few words telling me what you like about it, what you'd like to see more of, or what you'd like to see less of. If you use Spotify, you can give a five-star review. You can't write anything, but please give me a five-star review on Spotify. And if you've read my book and you've enjoyed it, can you please, please go on Amazon and review it and add some comments? I'd be really, really grateful. Finally, if you want to send me an email, you can do that um, via my website, which is www.tjfbook, all one word, tjfbook.com. And I promise you, I'll reply to you. And finally, if you want to join the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site, you will find it, funnily enough, on Facebook. Thanks ever so much. Bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>